one of the cornerstones of Buddhist practice, one of the things that makes uh, that's distinctive about Buddhism is going for refuge. Um, because Buddhism is in many ways uh, a therapeutic methodology, um, its, its aim is to alleviate suffering. And one of the things that Buddha said about his teaching was that um, one of the marks of of, uh, of a Buddhist teaching is that it alleviates that it, it alleviates suffering or it helps people teach people how to alleviate their own suffering um, so if a, if, a, if a teaching or a method or a practice helps alleviate suffering then then that's a sign that it's a Buddhist practice and if it doesn't help alleviate suffering if it's not aimed at that goal then it's not a Buddhist practice um, or a Buddhist teaching so refuge, as one of the cornerstones of Buddhism, is based on this idea that we're, we're orienting our life, we're, we're setting as the marker of success the, the reduction and ultimately the elimination of suffering. And so refuge is this really sweet idea that, that um, Buddhism, Buddhist practice, Buddhist teachings and Buddhist practice can protect us somehow. They can provide shelter euphemistically. Um, they, you know, they don't necessarily provide us shelter in the physical sense, but they can provide us something more effective, which is the ability to regulate ourselves and to to be working towards the elimination of suffering, regardless of the outer circumstances. And that can be a tall order. We have to work at that. You know, it's it's um, it's Pollyanna to say that we can just choose how we react to things, right? That's one of the main characteristics of reactivity, of, of having a mental affliction, is that it doesn't seem like we're under control. We're not under the control of ourselves in those moments. So while we, you know, it seems like we can't control the things that are happening to us, but it's it's um it's overly optimistic to say that we can control how we react to it. But what Buddhism is saying is that we can learn how to react. We can learn how to choose how to react. We can gain skill over our our over our emotions. We can learn to watch for subtle emotions before they turn into gross, overwhelming emotions. Um we can learn to stabilize our mind so that it's um, steady, that we can choose what we concentrate on, and that we're not just subject to ruminations, the monkey mind, um, running off in whichever direction, and we're kind of chasing to catch up after it. That's, again, I refer to this uh, steps, the, the path of meditation uh, chart behind me. In the beginning of that, the... Um, the monkey is running away off the path, and the and the meditator, our ourself, is desperately chasing after it, wondering, trying to catch it because it's it's scampering off in whatever direction it wants to go, and and Buddhism is saying that we can learn how to stabilize our mind, we can learn how to control our or at least regulate our emotions, we can learn how to choose how to react to things, and and that's the type of shelter that it provides. That's the type of 
protection that it provides. We're going to talk about the mantra in the Heart Sutra tonight. And one of the meanings of the word mantra is mind protector, the literal meaning from Sanskrit. And so refuge is another mind protector. And, and, so, we, and so we take as this kind of starting place from, in Buddhist practice and Buddhist study that it can help us, that it can help protect our mind. And that's, and that's the refuge. So when we, we go for refuge, we're, we're, we're having confidence that these practices and that these teachings can help us somehow. Um, we're not um, we're not just you know practicing a liturgy for some kind of you know tr- magical boon. We're we're doing it because it has practical value. <clears throat> so we go for refuge to the three jewels, and they're jewels because again the the you know this euphemistic language, this uh, evocative language in Buddhism, they're jewels because they're precious. And so if we can find them, we need to cherish them. Um, and, uh, and if we invest in them, like if we're, if we're going to take like a capitalist approach to the three jewels, if we invest, if we invest our refuge wisely, then it will, we will collect interest. Um, it will pay dividends. So we go for refuge to the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. The Buddha is... Um, a teacher and a guide. Um, you know, we can we can think of Buddha as somebody who's who's leading us along the way, and we can take shelter in that. We can take refuge, seek solace, help alleviate our suffering, with this idea that there's there's someone who's tread who's navigated this path ahead of us, and who is incur- and telling us that the path is safe, and telling us that if we follow this path, there. Are rewards, and he tells us up front what the rewards are. But he do, he doesn't say I can't. He he doesn't give you the rewards. He, Buddha tells you that he can teach you the path. He can show you the way, but you actually have to do the work if you want to get the rewards. That's another way that Buddhism is unique. It doesn't it doesn't promise uh, it doesn't promise treasure. It, it provides a treasure map, and then you have to find the treasure. So we, we go for refuge to the Buddha because Buddha ha- has walked this path. Buddha is guiding us. Um, Buddha has made this major discovery of enlightenment, the permanent end of suffering, this, this um, state of peace and bliss and joy and em- empowerment, a place from which we can help others better. So we're not just pursuing the end of suffering for our own selves, but so that we can be more effective for helping others. So there's this com- this compassionate aim. So that's the that's the we go for refuge to Buddha because of these characteristics, um, and then the path that Buddha has has tread, he's left this um, he he has left the treasure map behind. That's the Dharma. The Dharma is this um, you know this methodology. Sometimes I talk about. Buddha as a scientist of the mind who has done these experiments in his own laboratory, has produced these results, told us what his results were, and then gives us the instructions to practice the experiment. And he says, this is replicable. You have to test it. In fact, you'll only, receive, you'll only see whether or not the experiments work if you test them. 
And so he gives us this kind of instruction manual for how to set up uh, our laboratory, our meditational laboratory, our practice laboratory, and what experiments to run. And throughout the sutras and the, and the um, commentaries on the sutras, there's lots of troubleshooting tips. Um, what happens if the experiment goes awry and you don't get the results that you want um, or the results that you're expecting? Here are things you can look for to, to tweak your experiments, to tweak the exercises. And that collectively is the Dharma. So, um, and we can take, we can get some shelter and protection and hope uh, and encouragement from that by knowing that wherever we are, there's a place we can begin. We, there's, there's an experiment that we can run. One of the ways that I practice dharma is whenever I catch myself ruminating, I say, wait a minute, there's a, whether I'm ruminating in a positive way or, or I'm, I'm anxious or I'm excited or uh, I'm anticipating something or I'm wanting something, wanting some object, thinking it's going to bring fulfillment, or if I'm angry or frustrated um, or sad or depressed and I catch myself, uh, I say, oh, wait, there's, a, there's an exercise that I could run as an antidote to this. And because I've studied Dharma, because I've taken refuge in the Dharma and studied the Dharma, I have this catalog of experiments, this catalog of exercises that I can run. And I can take, I can take shelter in that. I can get protection from that. I can um, have confidence in my resilience for hardship, knowing that I have this catalog of remedies and so even when things are going relatively smoothly, instead of being worried about the next disaster that's coming down the pipe, uh, I can take refuge in the Dharma saying, okay, I, I'll, I have the resources to manage that when it comes. And even if it's a terrible disaster, at least I will have some way to help regulate my mind, some way to work with my mind. And then we take refuge in the Sangha, the third of the three jewels. The Sangha is um is the community support that we have um we can we can take shelter and protection in knowing that there are people we can reach out to for help um, that can be our spiritual community but we also have a lot of mental health resources like crisis lines and things like that like there's we're never completely out of resources there's never there's always something available um there's some way that we can reach out for help. And, and we're fortunate, many of us are fortunate that we, all, we, we do have a spiritual community, that we do have colleagues and friends and teachers, um, mentors, who are helping us um, with our practice, who are helping us have access to teachings, who are helping you know, our, our, our friends and board members of Dharma centers who do a lot of work um, volunteering on their own time to make sure that there is a center and that there is a place that is recruiting teachers and recruiting teachings and making it possible to have access to dharma and making a giving a place for the community to gather um and then and another aspect of sangha is the the lineage of buddhist practitioners throughout history who have provided the kind of troubleshooting tips that i was talking about in the in the dharma aspect um, people who have thought about these things and put together their own kind of working manual, their own lab manual. They've, they've, they've set up the lab and they've run the experiment, experiments and they've taken copious notes and then they leave their 
their lab notes behind and so we can read about many different ways that these experiments have been have been done um, and lots of different types of people have have been successful with the Buddhist path and so we have we can hear about all different types of people different Buddhist lifestyles um, you know a lot of those are monastic we hear about people who you know wore robes and shaved their head and either became wandering monks, mendicants, or joined a monastery. But there are lots of Buddhists who have achieved meaningful results in their practice while being householders or, you know, being parents and having a job and things like that. And and so we can read about these stories um, and, uh, and gain confidence and encouragement and support along the way. So the three jewels really lock together, you know, that's why sometimes it's called, instead of saying three jewels, it's called the triple gem, you know, and uh, one jewel that has these different facets. The Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha are all interrelated, and um, each one, you know, feeds and, and lends support to the other two, like a tripod, you know, all three of them perch together, create this stable base. And that stable base is something that we can rely on. So I find contemplating refuge to be a, um, a helpful, in and of itself, to be a helpful Buddhist practice. <clears throat> um, you know, when when I was early in my Buddhist practice, I remember the three the three jewels was just sort of this like liturgy that we would recite at the beginning of the of a thing, and we would all get together and then we would chant something, and oftentimes it was in a different language, Chinese or Tibetan. Sometimes you encounter it in Pali in the Theravada schools, and um, but, you know, I won and I didn't really understand it because it was in a language I didn't understand. But I thought about like, well, we have to we're doing this at the beginning of every single thing. You know, sometimes you do it twice. We'll like have a teaching and then we'll take a break and go have some tea and we'll come back and then we'll do the refuge prayer again. Um, and I was like, OK, there's got to be something in this. So I started, you know, studying it in English and reading translations and and contemplating it. Um so that's why I emphasize it at the beginning of every practice, rather than to say, "Okay, this is something we all we all got to chant it together and then move on." Like well, this is this is the foundation. This is like the stable base upon which everything else is coming. Um, then the the next part of the stable base, or like maybe the next foundation, is the is setting the right motivation. And that motivation, as I already mentioned, is um, based on compassion. Um, and specifically that ending our own suffering is not a satisfactory goal um, because we care about other people. We care about their suffering as well. It's not like we're in a, it's not like we're in a um, sinking ship and we just grab out the life vest and jump off and say, okay, everybody, every, you know, every person for themselves. Um, no, we're trying to patch the ship. We're trying to fix the thing. We're trying to work together to fix the, the whole thing. Um, we wouldn't, we, you know, we, we really wouldn't be in nirvana if we achieved nirvana and then looked out on a suffering world. Um, so working towards alleviating the suffering of others is, is also a cornerstone of Buddhism. Um, they, in Mahayana Buddhism, they say that sooner or later, you'll realize that ending your own suffering is not sufficient, necessary, but not sufficient. And so they say, you may as well just start from the beginning, working to help other people with their suffering as well, both as a motivation and as a practice. 
So when we set the motivation of bodhicitta, of, of um, achieving enlightenment for the benefit of others, not just for our own benefit, um, that's, the, that's the goal, that's the aim. But the practice of bodhicitta is helping others. And so all of the different little ways that we help people, which we already do, um, we can remind ourselves that those acts of compassion are supporting our spiritual aims, and that makes them more powerful. That's one of the cool things about bodhicitta is that with the motivation of bodhicitta, setting, setting enlightenment for the sake of others as the goal makes all of the acts of compassion that you're already doing spiritual acts. Um, they, they are building your, your um, karma, your store of good karma, your store of merit, which is driving you towards enlightenment. So we can do those acts of compassion sort of cavalierly, or we can do them with intention. And they have much more power if we do them with intention, even though it's the same act. In the case of a, something like this, a, a teaching, um, you know, we're, this is a, a text on wisdom, the perfection of wisdom. And um, the perfection of wisdom is crucial to enlightenment, crucial to awakening, realizing emptiness, realizing the lack of self-nature of people and phenomena. Um, we're this, because something like this is necessary for enlightenment, even though you know we're just kind of hanging out, chatting, and studying ancient literature, um, we're, we're acting on our mind. We're changing, we're learning how to change the basic way that our mind operates, the basic ways that our mind functions. Um, and this is kind of a little engine that could activity, you know? It, it feels Sisyphusian at times, um, pushing the boulder uphill and not really feeling like there's an outcome. Um, I, mean, I don't know if that ever, if you ever feel that way, but I sometimes feel that way, where um, it feels like there's an unlimited amount of work to do and the goal of enlightenment seems so distant and remote that I don't know if it even is real. Um, but I, you know, because I take refuge in the three jewels, because I contemplate things like the perfection of wisdom, transcendent wisdom, um, and because I've had experiences that give me clues that, that indicate that this is something that's worth striving for, I keep working at it in the small ways that I can. But it's something that builds momentum slowly until there's like a, a head of steam and then results come quickly. They come in a flash. Um, and it was last week or the week before we were talking about the, the four paths. I think it was last week and we were talking about the stream enterer. And the stream enterer is like when you jump in the river and you're being swept along towards enlightenment. And the stream enterer is something that can happen suddenly. Making that transition to becoming a stream enterer is something that can happen suddenly. So when we're, we're doing a practice like this, studying a, a sacred text, a Prajnaparamita text, we are actively making efforts towards this goal of alleviating others from suffering. And that's, you know, the text makes it clear that that's true because, of course, the 
the speaker in the text, the teacher in this text is Avalokiteshvara, the, the Bodhisattva of compassion. So the, from the mouth of compassion emerges the, the teachings of transcendent wisdom. The, this text has a few main sections, um, a few main purposes. One of them is to define emptiness. Um, and so the, this is something that we've reviewed at the beginning of each text, but um, there, are many, there are many different texts in the Prajnaparamita genre, um, the perfection of wisdom genre. Some of them are very long and um, have lengthy descriptions and definitions of emptiness. The Heart Sutra is the most condensed, the most dense. That's why it's called the Heart Sutra, because it's the heart of the perfection of wisdom. It's the most condensed version. So its definition here is only a few, its definition of emptiness here is only a few lines, but it, um, it tells us everything we need to know in order to meditate on emptiness, in order to meditate on non-conceptual, non-dual awareness. And it's posed at, it's post it's posed as negatives but it's also posed as positives um, and the way that it's posed as positives um, is quite interesting quite illuminating because it it tells us that there is that things that seem to be self-evident lack the the self-evidentness of them is lacking which is not to say that they don't exist this is one of the of course one of the main errors with prajnaparamita and studying emptiness is mistaking emptiness for nothingness um the another translation for emptiness is voidness and voidness even sounds even more nihilistic. Like it's just there's an there's an absence of anything. But emptiness is not saying that there's an absence of anything. It's saying that things don't have the essences. They don't have the self nature that they seem to have based on our perception. That we're perceiving the self nature as self evident, but that perception is an error. In that, that perception is an error. It's a mistake. The things are there, but they're not there essentially. They're there relationally. Things only exist in relationship to other things. They don't exist other than being in relationship to other things. So it's the first definition is um, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. This is the famous line from the Heart Sutra. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Form is not other than emptiness. Emptiness is not other than form. Whatever is form, that is emptiness. Whatever is emptiness, that is form. And the same is true of the your your sensations, your perceptions, your your the the capacity for sensation, the capacity for perception the the karma that the causation the 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 web of causation that's leading the world to leading the world to be the way it is for you and consciousness itself are all in this in this relationship where they 
they exist they exist but they only exist as an absence of a self nature and the absence of a self nature is why they exist if they were essential they would not be changing but as we can see everything is changing things are continually changing and they're changing in in the broad arc of time in the sense of like eventually things break or deteriorate um, but they're also changing in the sense that they are they only exist as the way that we perceive them to exist and our perceptions of them are changing even if we're not aware of our perceptions of them changing we we experience the table differently when it's got a bowl of popcorn on it and we're watching a movie and it exists differently for us than when we stub our toe on it and it's a source of great consternation and it's terribly in the way the table is neither the support for the popcorn nor is it the object that i stub my toe on it's a support or an obstacle depending on how i perceive it and it only exists in relationship to the perception of it but this is also true of all of the aspects of our consciousness. This is true of all of the aspects of our perception and our feelings. Our, the, you know, I think that it's easier to get in touch with the changing nature of things when we're looking at thoughts and feelings, where it's hard to even hold on to a thought or a feeling. But that, but that, same, that same ephemeral changingness is equally applicable to solid objects. It's applicable to our body. It's applicable to, to everything. Things are only existing in relationship to other things. They are only existing due to our perception of them. So that's the first aspect of, um, of emptiness. All dharmas, all phenomenon have the, the characteristic mark of emptiness. then the, the kind of deeper layer of that is that they are not born or not produced or created and they're not destroyed. They're not impure or... or Impure sounds like kind of a technical... I mean, it sounds like... They're not... It's not... Impure doesn't just mean like dirty, but it, do, it does mean dirty. It does mean like the house when it needs to be cleaned you know or dirty dishes but they're not impure and they're not and nor is it pure it's not it's not sullied or or you know impure means not being the way you want it to be right it's like i have a piece of furniture that someone gave me and it's fine but i don't really like it that much and so it's impure. It's not impure in the sense that it's like disgusting, but it's impure in the sense that it's like, it's not, I just don't like it that much. But in, from emptiness, it's not essentially that. That's a, a characteristic of my perception. Or I have a piece of furniture that I absolutely love. The perfect sofa. We finally find the perfect sofa. And then, the pu then we impute purity onto the amazing velvet sofa. And the purity of the perfect sofa is also imputed. The sofa is not inherently pure. It's, and it, and when, it, when, the, when a baby throws up on it, it's not inherently impure either. Those are qualities of characteristic. Those are qualities of our perception. Those characteristics are coming from our perception. 
So meaning that the sofa seems impure or pure depending on, how, on what we're imputing on the sofa. And it's subject to change. It does not have a self-nature. This, the seeming self-nature of the disgusting baby puke sofa is a quality of, of my perception or the quality of the, the perfect brand new velvet sofa that I've been dreaming of is also a quality of my perception. And both of those things are not quality. They're not characteristics of the sofa. The sofa is empty of those things. Those are qualities of my, of my perception of the sofa. And it's always subject to change. As soon as the cat scratches the new sofa, it ceases to be the dream sofa. And now it's the sofa that the damn cat scratched. And, they, and, the, and the, the, the cat, which seems so pure when it's sitting in your lap purring quietly, then becomes the impure SOB who screwed up my beautiful pure sofa. All of the, the everything is changed. This is what emptiness is trying to get at, that, that the cat goes from being snuggly and nice and pure to a total jerk who scratched up my sofa in an instant and the cat was never any the cat was never any of those things the cat was only ever what i'm per- imputing what i'm perceiving in it at the moment and so similarly um the the sutra says that things are not di- not incomplete and not perfect so things cannot be improved upon but also they're not lacking anything when things seem that oh this would be you know the, this piece of furniture that i have that i like kind of but it's like it, it's got a scratch on it and i think that oh it would be better if it didn't have the scratch Th- that again it's not it, it's not deficient because of the scratch it seemed that that's the the scratch the the seeming imperfection of the thing due to the scratch is all qualities of my perception of it. And um, similarly, like with the sofa, like the brand new sofa is not perfect because it's perfect. It's a, it, 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 it isn't complete, perfect, ideal, because again, I'm choosing to see it that way. And of course, one of the main things of of emptiness is that things are impermanent, things are changing. So even when you have the perfect, pure, ideal sofa, brand new from the factory, um, it's a ticking time bomb. It's a lit fuse now. It's only a matter of time. Weeks, days, maybe only hours until it gets messed up and it's no longer the ideal sofa anymore. It's, it's things and it's always subject to change. It's never, it, it never was the, the perfect, pure, complete, ideal thing that it seemed to be. All of those are characteristics of my perception. And those characteristics are, the sofa is empty of the characteristics that I'm imposing on it. Okay. I know I, I feel, I feel like I'm kind of beating a dead horse with the emptiness thing, but it's, it's important to think about it from a lot of different angles and, and many different um, approach it from different perspectives because it is elusive. Because even in this moment, we're perceiving svabhavas to everything. Um, 
everything that I look at has the asvabhava that seem that seems to me to be the thing's self nature, right? Remember the the text says there's the 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 characteristic mark of emptiness, um, or was it? I don't remember if it was that line. Um, but anyway, the, this word svabhava, like bhava means being, to exist, and then sva means self. And so this word self-nature is like, it really seems to be real. It's real realness. It's so real. I, there's no doubt in my mind that it's real. And emptiness is saying that right there, that seeming, that self-evident realness of the thing is incorrect. It, there, that is a quality of your perception. And that's true of your thoughts, that's true of your feelings, that's true of your identity, that's true of, of everything. And so in that vein, the sutra um, goes on to um, kind of undermine these uh, core teachings of Buddhism to say that um, the, the 18 datus, the, which is which is um, the Buddhist model for perception, how perception is working. It, you remember, in the, over the last couple of classes, we've talked about how these Buddhist teachings on perception, on the 12 links of dependent origination, um, it's taking things that seem to us to happen instantaneously as automatic. Um, we, we don't even, are, we are not even aware of the cognitive processes or the consciousness processes that are happening. And the um, the Buddhist kind of philosophical frame, framework or perceptual you know framework of perception of how perception is working breaks it down into these micro micro moments, or breaks it down to, it breaks it down into these discrete functions, um, and so like the eighteen datus are the six three sets of six, the sense organs, eye ear nose mouth. Uh, or tongue taste specifically, um, body to uh, the sensation of sensation of touch and the mind, the capacity for cognizing things, um, and then the six sense objects, visible objects, sounds, smells, tastes, sense physical sensations, and the objects of thoughts. So it's making even in the, the mind, it's making this distinction between there's the mind, which is a which is a sense organ. And then there are thoughts, which are the objects, the sense objects of the sense organ of the mind. And then there's the sense perceptions, which is the capacity for those two things to interrelate. And so the, an eye organ in a Petri dish that's, is not capable of seeing. It's only when it's, um, being, when it's connected to a sense consciousness, the capacity for seeing. And um, furthermore, these things um, don't exist at all independently from one, from one another. Visible objects don't exist unless they are being seen. And the only way that they're being seen is because there's an eye organ and an eye consciousness that are in the process of seeing them and perceiving the seeing. And all of that is happening together in a, in a nexus. There's no visible objects um, unless they are, there's not any given visible object unless it's being seen and perceived to be seen. Um, 
But the Heart Sutra says all of these are themselves empty. These are all categories that we're imposing to things that we think have self-nature. We think that the eye organ, even so, so we break it down into these constituents, and then the Heart Sutra says, okay, those constituents are also empty of self-nature. And then we do the, the 12 links of dependent origination, which is this process through which we, which we as a being come to exist through these micro moments driven by, driven by ignorance, driven by karma, driven by the, the urge to exist, driven by the tendency to um, identify discrete objects and name them, driven by the, the urge to perceive and interact with the world. The, the urge to actually connect with and experience uh, objects, of sen objects of sensation. And then feeling that those things have in them the inherent, the inherent um, value that we are actually imposing on them. Ice cream being tasty, cat puke being disgusting. Um, but they seem, to, the, they seem to inherently have those characteristics. And then we think, oh, if I have more of this or if I get away from this, then that's going to be me getting my needs met. That's what drives the, the process of being, right? The tenth of the, of the twelve links is bhava. So that bhava is the sva bhava that the Heart Sutra and Prajnaparamita, perfection of wisdom, is attacking. And that's what drives em emerging, emerging into being. So like there's 10 discrete, discrete steps that are taking place leading up to our experience in the moment, moment to moment. And then of course, each experience last and and decays and then there's a subsequent experience um buddhism especially the abhidharma school describes things like this they don't say that we're in a they don't really describe it as a flow they describe it as 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 instances of of perception that are like tumbling like an infinite domino pile each instant triggers the subsequent instant, triggers the subsequent instant, tr triggers the subsequent instant. Um, and it, it's happening so fast that it feels to us like a flow of experience. Um, so the Abhidharma school is breaking down the, the 12 links of dependent origination into each of these, each of these discrete micro moments itself has several discrete micro moments. Um, if you like rabbit hole type geeking out stuff, um, I recommend going into Abhidharma because it's it's uh, it's got infinite variations and and goes into quite a bit of detail um, with how consciousness is working on on extremely minute micro moments of perception, and then sub subsequently that interrupting the process of the twelve links preventing the any of the 12 links from tree tri like if there's at any point where you can stop that domino from knocking over the subsequent domino you interrupt the whole process but the heart sutra is saying okay those are all still categories you're still just trying to you're still trying to take it and get a grip on it and hold on to it and say okay this is how the mind is really working 
And the Heart Sutra keeps saying, oh yeah, that way that you think the, the mind is really working, that you've been studying, and that is like this highly sophisticated psychology or the science of the mind. The Heart Sutra says, yeah, that's just another framework that you're using. And as long as you're holding on to these frameworks, you're not going to get out of the frameworks. It's the tendency to create frameworks that's keeping us in samsara. And the, the Heart Sutra then goes on to even say that the Four Noble Truths, the, the, the sort of foundation of all Buddhist teachings, that, that, um, the, that the core problem in the human experience in all, in all forms of life, not just the human experience, the core problem is suffering. And suffering has a core cause, which is craving. And the, there's an alternative. The good news, right, that Buddha wants to proclaim is that there's an alternative. You can stop suffering. And that there's a path that you can take. There's, there, are, there are steps that you can take to um, end the suffering. The Four Noble Truths. Um, the Heart Sutra says, no, there is, there's no suffering there's no cause of suffering, there's no nirvana, there's no cessation of suffering, and there's no path. Um, all of those, again, are their scaffolding, their frameworks, their things we're holding on to. So um, the Heart Sutra has now like come and taken away all of our safety blankets, all of our, I mean, it's funny to, to start with this like three jewels you know exposition of all the things that we can take shelter in and all the the refuge we can take you know all the ways that we can take refuge in the buddha because the heart sutra would say no there's no buddha to take refuge in there's no refuge there is no there is no refuge there's no dharma to take refuge in there's no sangha to take refuge in all of these are impositions all of these are things that you're that you buy by taking refuge in these things, you are setting up frameworks that are keeping you in samsara. Um, the Heart Sutra just like comes in and like anything that you can throw at the Heart Sutra will cuts it down. It says that's a framework, that's a perception, that's a, as soon as you say something, you've given it a svabhava that isn't isn't really there. So up until this point, the Heart Sutra has, has left us in a pre, like it's led us out into the middle of the forest and then it said, okay, you know, there's no path, there's no map. All the stuff that you have been relying on, even in your Buddhist practice, even in your meditation, all of that stuff, I, I'm sorry to tell you. I mean, it's not very apologetic, actually. It doesn't say, I'm sorry to tell you. It just says, nope. Well, what about this? Nope. Well, can I rely on this? No, you can't rely on that either. Um, but the Heart Sutra does lead us out of the lead us out of the woods. So um, up until this point has been, I've reviewed the sutra that we've covered so far, and now um, we're going to read through till the end. Um, if you're following along with a written version in Sanskrit, we're at the section that says Tasma Chariputra Apraptitvad Bodhisattvasya Prajna Paramitam Ashritya Viharatya Chitta Varanaha. 
Um, so uh, again, Tasmat, 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 Chariputra. Um, Sanskrit has ways that where the letters change depending on how they meet up with each other. So there is a lot of places. This is something I've avoided talking about because it's a whole thing in Sanskrit all of its own. Um, but like you can see here that it's not Shariputra, it's Chariputra. That's because the previous word ended in a consonant that. I think it's Tasmat. And then it goes into a Sha. Shari Tasmat Shariputra. And in Sanskrit, when you put a ta and a sha together, it turns into a cha. So it says Tasmat Chariputra. <clears throat> um, and there's lots of examples like that. So if you've been looking, if you have been following along in the Sanskrit and you're not and you're not that familiar with it, and you're like, wait a minute, why is that an O instead of an uh? Because I know this word ends in an uh, but not an O. The, that's why. It's it has to do with the way that Sanskrit words change when they um encounter other words um, but that's beyond the scope of this class to go into much detail so he says therefore Shariputra because we're still listening to um, Avalokiteshvara giving a discourse to Shariputra he said from, um, from the state of a bodhisattva's non-attainment so that's apraptitvat bodhisattvasya um, having relied upon the perfection of wisdom the bodhisattva dwells achitta avaranaha. This is the uh, the last word in this line, um, and that um, and chitta means mind or thought, and avaranaha means uh, it means thought uh, covering. It means something that it means something that covers it. So chitta means thought. And uh, avar, avaranaha means covering. Um, and so we would translate it, that into English. Uh, you'll see it as like obstruction or impediment. We talk a lot about obstacles in Buddhist practice. So this would be um, chitta avaranaha. <laughs> Fortunately, Sanskrit is extremely phonetic. So uh, you can always sound things out. Um, chitta avaranaha means uh, ob obstacles. And so there's a leading a, uh, a chitta avaranaha, and that means without thought coverings. So this line is therefore Shariputra, because of the bodhisattva state of non attainment, having relied upon the perfection of wisdom, the bodhisattva, he or she, dwells without thought coverings. Um, I forgot because there is the last line right before this one is um, na, I didn't include this in the review. Najnyanam napraptir napraptihi, and that means there's no understanding, no attainment, and no non-attainment. So here is where he's criticizing, or not criticizing, critiquing, undermining, taking the self-nature away from this idea that if you work towards um, attainments, right? Like the idea that there are realizations. That's when we were talking about the stream enterer, the once returner, the non-returner, and the arhat in the previous class. The four stages of an arhat, the four stages of moving to nirvana. Um, those are the attainments. 
and the Heart Sutra is saying there are no attainments, but also there's no non-attainment. This is, I think, the, the turning point for the Heart Sutra is when it says there's nothing to attain and nothing to not attain. And that's why we get to this line. Therefore, because the Bodhisattva abides in a state of non-attainment, having relied upon the perfection of wisdom, they are dwelling without obstructions, without obstacles. So here, this in this line is where they're starting to define what an, what and how an enlightened being exists, how an enlightened being lives. The de- defining a bodhisattva, defining a Buddha. Um, in this text, I think bodhisattva and Buddha are nearly synonymous, but don't quote me on that. It's talking about beings who are enlightened or very very nearly enlightened beings who are existing or living in Prajnaparamita, living in this transcendent, transcendent, non-dual wisdom where they are not mistaking um, things for having svabhavas. So the, the bodhisattva's state of non-attainment, they are not striving for anything. They simply are aware that there's nothing there's nothing, there's no impurity, there's no purity, there's nothing that can be added, there's nothing that's deficient. There's, everything is as it is. Nothing is created, nothing is destroyed. They have dropped the process of seeing things as svabhavas, seeing things as having self-nature. And so they abide in this state of non-attainment. Now, and this is, I don't know if we can even really wrap our minds around this conceptually, but we need to in order to meditate on it more deeply. Um, we often think of bodhisattvas in Buddhism, we think of bodhisattvas as, as beings who have attained a certain level of realization. They have you know, the Bodhisattva path is described as like these 10 stages, the Bodhisattva Bhumis. And, and when you achieve a certain level of meditative concentration and a certain level of, of compassion, then you are at this certain stage and, and it's like climbing a ladder. And if you get this level of attainment, these types of realizations, then you move up to the next la- stage in the ladder. And you kind of like are gradually sort of climbing the rungs of this ladder, getting up to full enlightenment. Um, but the Heart Sutra defines the Bodhisattva as being in a state of non-attainment. They're not striving. They don't think of themselves have, as having realizations. They don't function in such a way that they are oriented around realizations or not realizations. So it's like attainment is a, is a kind of realization, a kind of spiritual realization in which there is nothing to strive for. And the way to realize that, the way to awaken to that, I think this is why awakening is, the, is a term, right? It's not like you achieve something. It's like you realize something that's been there all along. And that realization is a non-attainment. 
It's the absence of, of striving. It's the absence of thinking that there is something to attain. And the bodhisattva then abides in a state without obstacles, without obstructions, and specifically without thought coverings, without thoughts covering their perception. It's the process of cognition, the process of imposing our perceptions on things and then seeing those perceptions as the svabhava of the object. Though That's what's covering our perception from perceiving things as they truly are. So relying on the, the prajnaparamita, the perfection of wisdom, allows the bodhisattva to the awakened being to dwell without thoughts covering their perception and then they exist in a state of non-attainment, non-realization. Um, briefly, I just want to mention the, the three types of obstacles that are typically mentioned because this, this term, avaranaha, is a, again a technical term and it's another one of these places where the Heart Sutra drops in a technical term and then sort of leaves out the sort of background information. It assumes that you're already well-versed in Buddhist literature and Buddhist philosophy and that you're coming to the Heart Sutra knowing that these that it's that the Heart Sutra is speaking in kind of a shorthand. But um, when I was preparing for this class, I I was reading commentaries and, and I and I realized that it's actually helpful to talk about the different types of obstacles. Because these are the types of obstacles that a bodhisattva doesn't have. They don't have these obstacles covering their mind, covering their perception. The three types, the, the first is the um, obstacles of past karma. Um, obstacles are things that are, just in general, obstacles are things that are preventing us from having perceptions of ultimate reality, perceptions of reality independent of our tendency to reify things, our tendency to apply the self-nature to things. Though they are obstacles because they are, I mean, they're like literally obstructions. They're like things that are preventing us from seeing things as they are because we're only seeing what we put between us and the quote-unquote real world, the, the reality without self-nature is being imposed upon it. And the first of these obstacles is karma, meaning things that are arising in our life now are coming from causes that have been put into place before now. Things that have been put into place by our own choices, by even, I think it's even better to think of, of um, karma as habits, um, tendencies to see the world a certain way, tendencies to react to things a certain way. And so because we're responding to past karma ripening in the present, that's part of a big part of why things seem to us to have self-natures, because we don't see the causes that put those things into place, the, the causes that were put into place to lead to things being the way they are in the present, and they seem like they exist independently of us, partially because we're not aware of the, um, the causes that we put into play through our own actions, through our speech. Of course, there's the actions of body, speech, and mind. 
um, th- uh, our actions and our speech, but also act- um, karma of mind, which is our tendency to think of things a certain way, our tendency to react to things a certain way. Um, you know, this is so core to our personality that it just seems like, well, that's who I am. But, you know, one of the things, if you look around the world, we can see, you know, especially in the climate today, we can see that pe- that other people see the world very differently than we do. That there are people who, who just have completely different versions of what they think is true, completely different versions of what they think is important, of what they think it, it means to be ethical, um, what it means to live a life of values and morality. Um, and... It's our, and you know, it's easy to us to, for initially to our initial impulse to to say, okay, well, I'm right and they're wrong. But the reality is, like their their version of reality is just as true for them as your re- version of reality is tr- for you. To meaning that it just seems like reality. It just seems like it just seems that things have their self nature. Unquestionably, it's just obvious that they have their self nature. Our tendency to see the world the way that we do is because of past karma. And, um, and, and karma also is like our circumstances of our life. Um, the types of resources that we have, have access to, um, the type of education that we have access to. Um, these are all things that are coming from past karma. So one, you know, we all, all of us here have uh, pretty fantastic karma that we have the time and the resources to hang out and watch a video chat over the internet, which is a miracle, by the way, on these computers, which are extraordinary technological developments, um, in a climate-controlled home, protected from the elements, presumably with full bellies because we have the miracle of DoorDash or grocery stores or whatever, you know, we have the miracle of refrigeration so that we can like buy a bunch of food and it just keeps until we're ready to use it. You know, these are miracles. And we have like, you know, we have access to resources that the wealthiest people in the world couldn't get 100 years ago or 200 years ago. You know, um, technology like vaccines, you know, 100 years ago, it didn't matter how rich you were, everyone was susceptible to disease. And we live in a world now where many diseases are, are treatable or eradicable. And I know that we definitely are not out of the woods with that. But, I, you know, every detail of my life is like beyond what was even cap- what was possible 100 years ago. Um, and furthermore, that we have the interest to, to study philosophy and that we have the time to study philosophy. So we all have extraordinarily good karma. But nevertheless, we do have the karma, or I mean, I'll speak for myself, that I have the karma of um, having such a strong tendency to see things as self-existent and to see things as having in them the ability to make me happy or not. Or not. Um, and that's all coming from karma. Um, so that's still an obstacle. Even though my life is extraordinary, I still have obstacles of, that are from coming from karma. 
But you can imagine other people have much severe, much more severe obstacles coming from karma. Some people have to spend their entire life entirely worried about where their food is coming from or have to spend their lives just laboring uh, in order to survive. Or they live in situations where they don't have homes with climate control where they're protected from the elements or they don't have access to medicine and vaccines. So um, other people have much greater obstacles coming from karma. The next um, form of obstacle are the obstacles of mental afflictions. And mental afflictions are, in this case, it means um, emotional reactivity, like I was talking about before. So um, the, the word for this in Sanskrit is klesha. So the obstacles of mental afflictions are that we struggle to regulate our emotions, that we can be overwhelmed by our emotions, that we... When pushed far enough, we can react strongly and it's difficult to calm down or to stay under control of our afflictions. Another version of this is wanting something so badly, like like greed, feeling so absolutely convinced that acquiring something or acquiring some relationship will end our suffering. That's, a, that's an obstacle. And then the third is um, obstacles of cognition. And this is one that I that this entire sutra is about, which is mistaking things as having a self nature, um, making this basic error of thinking things are self existent when they're not self existent, um, when they are in fact empty. Okay, the next verse, or the next line rather. So what we just had was, therefore, Shariputra, because of the bodhisattva state of non-attainment, having relied upon the perfection of wisdom, he or she dwells without thought coverings, without obstacles, without obstructions. The next line, Chitta varna nastit vada trasto Viparyasa kantro nishta nirvana praptaha. So here we have a word that we recognize, nirvana, right? Um, that that um, is in a compound. Um, nishta nirvana praptaha. Um, praptaha means um, attained or reached arrived at and nishta means state or condition or position it also means um, steadiness certitude certain knowledge certain being certain in your knowledge um, it also means culmination or perfection or conclusion so this phrase nishta nirvana praptaha means um, attained well this is the tricky thing, right? Attained isn't really the right word. Attained the condition of nirvana. Attained the culmination of nirvana. Um, and nirvana means extinguished, calmed, quieted, tamed. Um, annihilation of desires. Annihilation is another possible word. And it's implying the, the cessation of desire, the cessation of, of mental afflictions. Those obstructions that we talked about. Um, a minute ago 
the obstructions of karma, the obstructions of mental affliction, the obstructions of mistakes of cognition. Nirvana means that those have been extinguished. There are no more obstacles. So um, arrived, so arrived at the condition or arrived at the conclusion of nirvana. Um, viparyasa atikranto uh, means having stepped over false thinking or delusion. Um, I like this idea of stepped over. It's like, I mean, this this also is evocative of the, like the uh, the crossing over to the other shore. Of um, you remember we were talking before about how like Buddhist practice is like building a raft, and we need the raft to to ford the river of suffering um, because we're trying to cross over. But then once we've arrived at the other side, we no longer need the the raft. It doesn't make sense to bring the raft with us. Um, but this idea of crossing over to the other shore is an evocative phrase for um, working towards and then achieving enlightenment, bodhi, awakening. So I like this having stepped over delusion. I think of like, uh, you know, t it's like delusion is, is this uh, log blocking the path and you've stepped over it and it's like, it's no longer an obstacle. Delusion is no longer an obstruction. It's not in the way anymore. Um, atrasto means not afraid, no fear. And then the first word, of course, is chitta varana, chitta varana which is obstacles, obstructions. And... Um, Nastitvad means not in the state. So not is a negation, right? So um, not in the state of having obstacles. Um, unafraid, atrasto, having stepped over delusion or stepped beyond false thinking. The bodhisattva, he or she, has arrived at the condition of the extinguishing of obstructions, the extinguishing of mental afflictions. Um, it's interesting in this text that earlier, the, the, um, the text says, you know, when it negates the four, um, when it negates the four noble truths, it uses the word niroda, which means cessation, instead of nirvana. So he's saying there's no there's no niroda, there's no suppression or annihilation of suffering, in terms of the four noble truth truths. But he is nevertheless saying that the bodhisattva arrives at nirvana. So the text is making a distinction here between niroda, cessation, and nirvana, extinguishing. That's something to think about. One of the one of the things that I like about reading the Sanskrit is getting into the nuances of these words. Because he is not in the state of having thought coverings, unafraid, having stepped beyond delusion, he or she has attained the condition of nirvana. Tradvyavavastitaha sarva buddhaha prajna paramitam ashrityam. Ashritya anuttaram samyak sambodim abhisambuddhaha. 
all Buddhas in the three times, all enlightened beings situated in the three times. That's Tradvyavavastitaha. Tradvya means three times. And the three times here refers to the past, present, and future. So what what this phrase is saying um, is that all Buddhas, all Buddhas who, all beings who have become enlightened, all enlightened beings who are alive now, and all beings who will become enlightened, um, all Buddhas without exception. That's what this is euphemistically saying, because it's also kind of negating time. It's not, it's not saying three times in the sense of linear time. It's saying in the sense of all time. Sarva Buddha, all Buddha situating, situated in the three times. Um, I struggle to translate this one because the grammar is is tricky. But um, having obtained asylum, ashritya, in the perfection of prajnaparamita, prajnaparamitam, um, ashritya anutaram samyak sambodim. Um, anutara. Um, you may you may have heard this term because there are um, in uh, certain schools of Buddhist yoga they talk about the four stages of yoga and the and the fourth of them is called anuttara yoga and that's the same word here anuttaram and uh, anuttara means nothing higher uttara means upper or higher and un is a negation and together that word means unsurpassable unsurpassed it means the highest there's nothing higher than this one so it's saying that um and that's modifying perfection of wisdom having obtained asylum in the in the highest perfection of wisdom all buddhas followed the path of the perfection of wisdom. Again, I'm sorry, the, the grammar of this one is weird. Followed, um, so, samyak means followed the, followed the path. So it's saying they've, uh, all Buddhas of the free, three times followed the path of the, having, uh, having obtained asylum in the highest perfection of wisdom followed the path of perfect wisdom, Sambodim, and joined with enlightenment, Abhisambuddha. All enlightened beings situated in the three times, having obtained the asylum or shelter that's similar to refuge, right? Asylum of the unsurpassed perfection of wisdom, followed the path of perfect wisdom and joined with enlightenment. This is an interesting euphemism or an interesting way of talking about enlightenment. Um, instead of saying that they attained or realized enlightenment, they say that they joined with enlightenment. They joined with awakening. There's this sort of melding or merging that's occurring in this process. So the these previous three lines um, all together. Therefore, Shariputra, because of the Bodhisattva's state of non-attainment, having relied upon the perfection of wisdom, dwells without 
obstacles or thought coverings. Because the bodhisattva is not in the state of having obstacles, unafraid, having stepped beyond delusion, has attained the condition of nirvana, has realized the, the completion of nirvana. All enlightened beings situated in the three times, having obtained the asylum or shelter of the unsurpassed perfection of wisdom, followed the path of perfect wisdom and joined with enlightenment. So the text again emphasizes the, the sort of um, practice nature of the perfection of wisdom. Remember, this was something that was introduced in the very beginning of the text, was that uh, Avalokiteshvara is practicing the practice of the perfection of wisdom. It uses that word practice twice in that, in that early sentence in the sutra. So it's really driving home for us here that it's not, it's not something that you strive for and then reach, like climbing a hill and then you're at the top and you can plant your flag. But rather the perfection of wisdom is a process. It's something that is ongoing, that the, the bodhisattva is practicing the perfection of wisdom on an ongoing basis. And that's what these lines are saying as well. All enlightened beings, without exception, took shelter in the perfection of wisdom. They, they use the perfection of wisdom as their refuge. This, this um, non-dual transcendental wisdom was their shelter, was their protection. They also followed the path of the perfection of wisdom. So this same line says both things, obtained asylum in the protection or taken shelter in the perfection of wisdom, but also followed the path of the perfection of wisdom. So two different ways of talking about how perfection of wisdom is working. It's a shelter, it's a path, it's a practice. It's a practice that must be put into practice. And what it leads to is this is the end of things that are uh, the end of thoughts obstructing perception. That's the this um, these two lines that both say um, without thought coverings, without obstacles. So perfection of wisdom means to not have thoughts or cognition obstructing perception. It prevents being in the perception, being in the perfection of wisdom is a process of not having thoughts obstructing or covering your perception, forcing you to see things wrongly, forcing you to see self-natures where there aren't self-natures. So now we're at the very end of the text, the, um, where the, the text tells us how to practice the perfection of wisdom. Um, it's given us all of these things about um, de a definition of emptiness. First, it set the stage with Avalokiteshvara. All of this is emerging from compassion. So it assumes that we're well steeped in our practice of compassion. And emerging from that compassion, it gives us a definition of emptiness, describing what emptiness is. And then it gives an example of all of the things that, especially as Buddhists, we're mistakenly thinking have a svabhava that don't have a svabhava. 
the um, which we have already talked about at length, and I don't need to go over again. But it's it gives it uh, it tells us even these Buddhist ideas that we that we're using in our practice also don't have a, a self nature, also don't have a svabhava, up to and including the meditation practice that leads to nirvana and nirvana itself are or the attainment the idea that nirvana is something to be attained are all absent of a svabhava and then it ex- explains to us how practicing the perfection of wisdom is a process of not having thoughts covering our perception creating obstacles, this obstacle of self-nature, this obstacle of mental affliction, this obstacle of being trapped by our karma. And finally, it tells us how to practice the perfection of wisdom. Um, There are many things that are unique about the Heart Sutra. Um, One of them is that it's the only only sutra in which Avalokiteshvara is the the speaker. Um, That's unusual. And also, it's the only Prajnaparamita texts that include a mantra. And the mantra is what's being introduced here as the, the solution. Um, the line in Sanskrit is Prajnaparamita Maha Mantro Mahavidya Mantro Anuttara Mantro Asamasama Mantraha Sarvaduka Prashamanaha Satyama Mityatvad. So it uses the word mantra five times in one line. It's really telling us about how amazing this mantra is. Tasmaj nyantavyam. Therefore, this is to be known. Here, so here it's handing us. It's like, this is what you need to know. This is what you need to do. After all of those negations, all of after those definitions of emptiness of, of saying, well, it, it is and isn't all of these things. And this is how bodhisattvas exist in the state of the of Prajnaparamita. This is what you need to know. Tasmajnyantavyam. This is to be known. Prajnaparamita is a maha mantra, a great mantra. Now, the word mantra is quite interesting, and um, again, because it's the only Prajnaparamita text that has a mantra, um, it's worth thinking about what a mantra is, how it works, how we would use it. Um, The word mantra literally means um, mind-protecting or thought-protecting. The root man is where manas comes from, the word for mind. So, and it also means to believe or to think. And then the suffix tra means it's a protect, it's protecting that previous thing. So mantra means mind protecting. Um, In the Sanskrit dictionary, mantra is translated as instrument of thought. I find that, I find that quite interesting because an instrument, an instrument could be like a tool like we think of a, as a scalpel as an instrument, but also an instrument, usually we're thinking of a musical instrument. And because mantras have this like rhythmic, tonal, hypnotic quality to them, they kind of are like playing, using your mind as a musical instrument. And you're playing the mantra as the, 
as an instrument in your mind. So it has both this quality of being something that protects your mind, but also something that is both a tool and a creative device, both of those things. Um, Mantra also means uh, sacred speech or text, prayer or song of praise. So all of these um, these vocative type qualities, right, where we're where we're invoking something, um, um, making a prayer, uh, reaching out, um, a song of praise. Again, a song, another quality of musicality to it. Um, But a song of praise. So we're seeing something as exalted. And we are, the mantra is a way of expressing our awe and our praise and our appreciation towards that thing. A way of using language that is sacred. So we use language in all of these profane ways in, in our when we're interacting with people and when we're having transactions and when we're having conversations in order to get things done and get our needs needs met. But a mantra is a form of sacred speech where the only purpose of using speech is to sacralize our life. And we can see again how that would connect to mind protecting. We're using our mind as an instrument to, we're using our mind and our speech as an instrument to make sacred and to evoke praise towards an exalted object. Mantra also means a magical formula, incantation, charm, or spell. So here we're even we're adding yet another quality or characteristic to the mantra, which is that it's a way of invoking, uh, invoking power or um, or trying to change our, our world through magical means. A charm, a way of, uh, of um, making something, taking an ordinary object and giving it magical potency. So again, like sacred speech, using our speech as the charm. And again, I uh, showed you that image um, of the of the um, the Heart Sutra mantra mantra in a sort of a flower like pattern, you know that's like a visual object that you could hold or look at or print out and put on your altar and gaze at while you're using the mantra. Again, that's sort of like a charm or a spell or a sigil or an incantation. But incantation is is ev- evoking this idea that we're like bringing something into being using magical means. Um, other possible meanings for mantra, which don't necessarily apply here, but maybe they do. These are all different connotations of the Sanskrit word. It can mean counsel or advice. So the word mantra could mean to be giving advice or giving counsel to somebody. It can mean plan or design. So there's, a, there's like an architectural element to it, a structural element. Um, a sort of intentional way of making manifest or planning how to make something manifest. And it also has the, the meaning of secret, something hidden or concealed or not evident to the naked eye. So even when we, 
So just for this, this, this sutra to be saying, Prajnaparamita is a great mantra. It's, Prajnaparamita is something that protects your mind, that is an instrument, that is sacred, a sacred prayer, a song of praise. Prajnaparamita is a formula, an incantation, a charm. It's, it's a counsel or advice. It's a plan or a design, and it's, and it's something secret. And it's a maha mantra. It's an especially powerful mantra. It's an especially awesome mantra. Now, another thing about this uh, phrase that I find quite interesting is it says prajnaparamita is a great mantra. It doesn't say access prajnaparamita by reciting a mantra or the mantra is like a point of access or... or um, you can meditate on Prajnaparamita by using a mantra. It says Prajnaparamita is the mantra. So this is what should be known. Tasmajnyantavyam. Prajnaparamita Mahamantro. This is what you need to know. Prajnaparamita is this great mantra. Mahavidya Mantro. Mahavidya uh, vidya means um, knowledge. Um, it, it means knowledge in the sense of science, learning, scholarship, philosophy. So it's a, it's a mantra of great knowledge, of wisdom. Um, interestingly, the word vidya also can mean spell or incantation. So it's very much creating this this like magical world, you know, it's this, it, this part of the, the sutra is like, is more like a liturgical text where it's been giving, it's like, it's been taking away all of these supports that we've been holding on to. And then we're, we're left like wondering where we are. And it says, all of the Buddhas have relied on this and, and only this. Here's what you need to know. Protect your mind with this, with this this incantation of wisdom with this magical protecting amulet that you use in your mind. This thing that's secret, it's not visible, it's only something that you can that you can hold inside yourself. Anuttara mantra, the highest mantra, the most powerful spell, the most powerful amulet, the most powerful incantation. Asamasama mantraha. An unequaled, an unequaled mantra. Um, the word sama means even or smooth or equal. So sama sama means uh, equivalent. And then asama sama means unequaled. There, it is uh, one of a kind. It is unique. It is the, the only mantra that is like this. Asama sama mantraha. Sarvadukha prashamanaha. Sarva dukkha, we, we've encountered these words before. Sarva means all, and dukkha means suffering or discomfort, or and it's and it means the sort of pervasive disease disease of samsara. All suffering. Prashamanaha is tranquilized, pacified, cured, healed with with the mantra of Prajnaparamita. Prajnaparamita is this mantra. 
that tranquilizes all suffering. Satya mamityatvat. It is true, satya, genuine, sincere, pure. And amityatvat means uh, literally without wrongness. Um, kind of a funny word there. Uh, and this gets translated in many different ways. It is, I've, I've heard it is true and not false. That seems, uh, that seems a little too simple to me, a little too pedantic. It doesn't really say it is true and not false. Um, uh, I saw a translation that posed it as a question. What, how, in fact, they, they literally said, what could go wrong was how they translated this word, prashamana, um, amityatvat, without wrongness. What could go wrong? Which, of course, this was an old translation. In the modern day, that takes on a different, you know, what could go wrong is like a sign that things are about to go wrong. So that translation is, is sort of, has it doesn't have the same potency that maybe it did in 1905 when it was translated. It is genuine and sincere without any wrongness to it. There's nothing in it, in, there's nothing in it that's wrong or incorrect. Prajna paramitam ukto mantraha. Um, the, praj, the, the mantra of the perfection of wisdom was spoken. That's interesting. I think it's interesting that that's in the past tense. Um, the mantra of Prajnaparamita was spoken. Um, again, it emphasizes this, this lyrical, um, vocal quality to it. It protects our mind by using our speech in a sacred way. So, um, so I find this interesting. I mean, there's so many ways that we can interpret what the mantra is and how it works. Um, I think of it as we're using our mind and we're using our speech to put ourselves into this kind of liminal state where the realities of the perfection of, the, of wisdom can be realized without intention. We're not reciting the mantra saying, okay, I'm going to, every time I recite the mantra, you know, you, you encounter this sometimes in Buddhism where they're like, you have to count the number of mantras that you say. And it's like, you have to accumulate 400,000 or a million or four million mantras. And like, that's how you know that you've made it is because you've accumulated these mantras. And I think that that's not what mantras are about. I think mantras are not about how many mantras that you've said, but it's about invoking this liminal state. You're giving your mind and your speech something to do so that the, the monkey's not tearing off down the road. You, the, you know, a mantra is a way of like putting the leash on the monkey and saying, okay, you know, sit still, you know, giving the monkey like a toy saying, okay, monkey, you do this. But the toy itself is something that invokes this spiritual state. It invokes this. It's this incantation. It's this spell. It's this sacred speech that, that a, a, allows this spiritual state to arise without intention. Intending it to arise is the type of... Um, the type of realization, the type of attainment that the Heart Sutra is saying, no, if you're working towards an attainment, you're just still struggling with categorical thinking. You're still 
applying self-nature to things that don't have self-nature. The mantra allows you to put yourself in a space where the spiritual state emerges without making it emerge, without struggling to get it to emerge, without being goal-directed. So in a way, we're kind of, we're putting ourselves in this liminal, magical environment that we're creating using the mantra. Tadyata is the next line in the, in the um, sutra, and Tadyata means, here it goes. Uh, it means here, here as follows, literally, but, but um, it means, get ready, here it comes. Gate gate para gate para sam gate bodhisvaha. Gate gate para gate para sam gate bodhisvaha. Gate gate para gate para sam gate bodhisvaha. Gone, gone, gone beyond. Gone totally beyond wisdom svaha. That's a rough translation. Mantras don't really get... Mantras can be translated grammatically, but the point of them isn't their syntactical value. The point of them is their evocative mood that, they, that you lull yourself into by using them. Um... There are some interesting grammatical characteristics to this that I would like to mention. Um, gate, meaning gone. Um, this is in a uh, in gram- in grammatical terms. This is in a feminine vocative case. So gate, th- this this noun could be in um, Sanskrit is a gendered language. So there's masculine, feminine, and neuter nouns. And um, some words can be shifted between different genders, depending on what they're referring to. So um, this word, gata, is one that can be masculine, neuter, or feminine. Um, In the mantra, it's feminine. So there's an intention here that that wisdom is a, a feminine characteristic. And furthermore, it's vocative meaning that you're addressing wisdom as a person, right? So like, you, you, I mean, if it, if it were the, the subject, it would be like, Mojo went to the store. Or if it was the subject, it would be like, I brought f- stuff from the store for Mojo. But it's evocative. Mojo, you go to the store. So we're talking to wisdom, as, a pers- as if it were this feminine entity. So we're, we're saying something like, it's, we're saying something like, oh, gone one, or oh, you know, she who, she who has gone, she who has, what do you say to she who has gone? Gone, gone, gone to the other side, para gate. This is like when we've talked about prajna paramita, 
that para mita, that para is um, cross, crossed over, cross, has crossed over. So when we say gone, sometimes this is translated as gone beyond. That's how I translated it a minute ago. But it means um, gone and crossed over. Para samgate. Um, sam is a prefix that mean, that can mean joined with or together with. In this case, I think it means completely. So gone, com- completely gone to the other side. Bodhi is this is the word for awakened. Bodhi is like the word that we translate as enlightened. When we talk about an enlightened being or a bodhisattva or bodhicitta, bodhi means awakened. In this case, bodhi is is the is nominative. This is the subject of the sentence. Of the if you could call this a sentence, it's not really a sentence, but and then, uh, so awake, Bodhi means awakened awareness. And Svaha is uh, an auspicious exclamation. It means uh, homage or, or hail, something like that. Um, it's, it's a, I mean, you can feel it when you say it, Svaha. It's a word that means like awestruck. It's an it's a exclamation of, of being awestruck. So, she who is gone, she who is gone, she who has gone to the other side, she who is completely gone to the other side, awakened, Svaha. kind of like mind blown. So that's what the mantra means, but we're not, when we're using the mantra, we're not using it like, a, like we're saying a sentence. So this is so the this is the end of the Heart Sutra. And if you're looking at the Sanskrit, you'll see the next line is Iti Prajna Paramita Hardayam Samaptam. And that means thus the heart of the Prajna Paramita is completed, is is concluded. That means th- the text is over. So with this version that we're using. The mantra is the very end. Gate, gate, para, gate, para, sam, gate, bodhisvaha. So now we have the, the whole text. And, the, and then the question then is how do we use it? How do we use this thing we've learned? One of the things that I've said a number of times in this course is that Buddhism is always pragmatic. It's always looking at how do we use this information? How is this helpful for us? And I think that there's, there's a few layers to how we could use this text. I think that if you were interested, you could make this text uh, a complete practice in and of itself. Um, because it provides with a, with a good amount of f- philosophical information, it provides you with, this is like con- learning the text. Right. That's on this on this uh, steps on the path of meditation. The first step on, on the path of meditation is learning the instructions, because there's no point in trying to meditate if you don't have instructions on how to meditate and what to meditate on. And so, rather than jumping into your meditation, you first spend some time learning the instructions. And so, with this text, there's a there's a, it's a shorthand, 
and it provides a lot of valuable information. It has a really solid definition for emptiness that gives us a lot to contemplate on how we're thinking of emptiness if we want to practice a prajnaparamita. Um, it gives us a lot of uh, it gives us reminders of a lot of major tenets of um, Buddhist philosophy and and psychology, how the mind is working according to Buddhism, which it subsequently negates, reminding us not to take the things that we're learning too seriously, not to get attached to these categories. These categories are useful, but don't get attached to the categories. It then has a pretty solid definition of what. Um, bodhi, what uh, awakened beings live like without thought coverings, unafraid. You know, there's this, these a few lines where it describes what a, Buddhist, what a Buddhist, bodhisattva or what a Buddha experiences themselves as. And then it gives us this practice with this very evocative mantra. So from the study and contemplation point of view, the whole sutra is, is valuable. You can read an English translation and a commentary. There's many translations and commentaries on this text, but we also have, um, you know, these this cl these classes that we've done and the notes. And I'm going to publish the the Sanskrit and my translation of the Sanskrit, uh, and so you can see both of those things. Um, so you can work with it from the Sanskrit if you want to, or you can work with it from the English. Um, then another stage, and this would be a traditional Buddhist practice, would be reciting the sutra um, and reciting it with the intention to memorize it. The Heart Sutra is quite short, so it's, uh, it's a sutra that's possible to memorize. Um, if you recited it once a day or a couple times a day, it would start to feel natural to you. Um, so uh, recitation and memorization of the whole sutra is a valuable spiritual practice and it's a way of getting of getting the if it's like a mnemonic device you know think of the sutra as like a mnemonic device for the ideas and the ideas are what you contemplate and meditate on more deeply and then with effect with as you get effective and skillful with that then focusing just on the mantra because the mantra then encapsulates all of the information of the rest of the sutra but not in like a analytic, cognitive kind of discursive way where you're like, okay, what comes next? Oh yeah, it's this and then this and there's the 18 things and there's the 12 things and there's the four things. Like all of that just kind of permeates your mind and then you can set it aside and then you just hang out sort of floating with the mantra, floating with the spell. And the, and the spell, the incantation evokes all of this. It call, you're calling Prajnaparamita into your life. And and it's sort of evocative as a person, as the bodhisattva of Prajnaparamita, but it's also this this quality of mind that you're bringing up in yourself that you are that you are seeking to embody, for lack of a better word, um, to, for it to emerge and arise and awaken in your life. And then it's just about going deeper into that process of recitation, the recitation of the mantra. And the mantra itself becomes the, the path that you follow to emptiness. The realization of emptiness, the practicing the practice of Prajnaparamita, the great, the great wisdom mantra. So as we're concluding here, we always come back to dedicating the merit. Dedicating the merit is one of these ways of potentizing everything that we've done by it, 
by setting uh, by setting the, a goal, kind of um, you know, like aiming the aiming where we want the sutra to, where we want the merit, where we want the karma to land, where we want the karma to ripen. Studying a whole text like this and going fairly deep into the concepts and into the into the original Sanskrit. Uh, creates a requires a lot of effort and um, and it shows a great deal of dedication for you to be putting the time and energy into this and you can dedicate that merit to to the goals uh, that you wish the the Buddhist goals are the traditional Mahayana Buddhist goals are that I want this karma to ripen as my spiritual awakening as a bodhisattva because as a bodhisattva, I will be much more effective at helping other people alleviate their suffering. I'll be much more resilient. I'll be much more skillful. I will have um, more resources to be able to dedicate to other people. And the, a shorthand of that is just saying, I wish this karma would ripen in others' hearts. I wish that they would receive the benefits of my efforts because I want them to be out of suffering. I'm willing to sacrifice this karma and give it up and say, I don't need it. I want other people to have it. They need it more than I do. May they have the spiritual results of this. May they have the accelerated growth in their, their spiritual progress. And ultimately, we will all, Buddhas of all three times, uh, travel the path of Prajnaparamita. So ultimately, we're all going to have these realizations. We're ultimately going to have the non-attainment of Prajnaparamita, in which the obstacles disappear and we are able to, to, to perceive clearly without obstacles and without thought obstructions. So we can dedicate our karma and our merit to that, having the direct perception of emptiness and, and realizing Prajnaparamita in our own lives.